0: Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 176 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday morning,
1: August 10th, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, this is this is a, an experiment for us. We, are, we, we have ditched the, the 20th century record via Zoom movement um, and are actually trying to record today on, wait for it, Zencaster. Woohoo! Oh, nice.
0: We've got sound effects. Thank you, Zencaster.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, people are going to really regret that we made this move because once
1: we figure out how to start adding more custom effects, I think we're
0: going to exploit this pretty relentlessly.
1: Oh, my gosh. Are you kidding? And, oh. and, 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 and for folks who don't know, I, I am currently the master of the – I'm sitting in front of the uh, the host screen, so I'm the one who has control over the sound effects.
0: Yes, that's going to make some people thrilled and some people nervous. Uh, I hope the sound quality is is what it ought to be. Uh, we'll see. I guess the post-production will fix everything. It can't be worse. Well, as I understand it, so Zencastr is pretty cool. There's there's an automatic certain amount of post-production, which I think basically involves running a compression algorithm that, yeah. that checks the levels. Like I can see right now from my screen that my level is real low compared to yours, but I think once we do post-production, it's just going to automatically level this out. So... Pretty neat. If they can give us a nice resonant tone, that's wonderful, too. And
1: if uh, I'm too loud, well, sorry, everybody. <laughs> even Zencastr can't fix that. Uh, so too, we, loud, too loud for Zencaster's compression algorithm.
0: We took last week off kind of impromptu because, I mean, it's August. It's 102 degrees outside, and, and life just gets in the way. Uh, but we're back now, and we're going to cover the First Circuit decision uh, vacating the death sentence against uh, Jokard Tsarnaev. We've got the TikTok and we, WeChat Aipa orders. Aipa. Oh, by the way, I was thrilled by seeing all the-, the number in- of
1: people on Twitter who are like, you guys are all pronouncing it wrong.
0: Yeah, well, and, and also the number of people who pronounced it right and credited uh, the program for our relentless messaging of IEPA being the-
1: Now, now that we've gotten IEPA, next up is, is Yosemite.
0: Oh, so you'll have to explain that one. I saw a few uh, references to that, and was as is often the case, pretty mystified as to what it. Was it the actually president's
1: had. effort to read out uh, to read the word Yosemite off of the teleprompter, and he said, "Yo, Semite. is that right? It was more like Yosemite, right? Okay, yeah, well, okay. Um, hmm. That he, was, also called, he also called Thailand
0: Thailand. Really, that's pretty brilliant. Um, why? Why was he talking about Yosemite? Oh, and something about national parks. Oh, okay was this was this the whole
1: like uh, add me to Mount Rushmore thing? I I think it was not the same the same part of that story, but that was that was a, that was <laughs> its own bundle of craziness. Add add me to all the parks. Um, so so the the best and sort of most quintessentially classically stupid part of the add me to Mount Rushmore piece is he's asking the governor of South Dakota to add him to a national park. Like, yeah, that's not how it works. But see uh-huh. federalism.
0: Well, misfeasance, malfeasance, there's a difference, and uh, we're lucky when it's misfeasance. Um, We are going to talk also, of course, about these other executive orders because they raise interesting um, sort of, uh, can he do that presidential powers questions, which is, again, a recurring theme of the Trumplandia segment. So we've got this, I think it's a quartet, am I right, Steve, that there were four executive orders over the weekend.
1: Executive orders slash memos.
0: Yes, right. So all presidential directives that were in the in the nature of, um, all right, if Congress can't pass a bill, then this is what I'm going to do. So we'll go through whether and to what extent there are presidential power uh, separation of powers questions with that. Maybe so, maybe not. And um, yeah, when we get to frivolity, I think that's we're going to stick to that as our substantive topics. And we get to frivolity, we're going to preview a topic that we're not going to get into this week because we want to involve listeners in weighing in on what they think about the greatest movie soundtracks. More about that later. And of course, we'll also inevitably talk about whether or not there will be college football, how the various major league bubble seasons are going, all that good stuff. Um, But first, in in here, I'm not sure how long we're going to dig into this one, but we do need to at least explain that the... uh, the surviving um, perpetrator of the, the Boston Marathon bombing, Joe Karsarnayev, who had received multiple death sentences. The First Circuit has vacated those death sentences, basically, and correct me if I'm wrong, Steve, but basically citing uh, the alleged failure of the district court to properly manage the jury selection process to weed out undue bias, uh, with examples given about uh, jurors who were tweeting about the defendant. Uh, before the proceedings had wrapped up and more generally saying that this wasn't a fair jury selection. And so this did not disturb the conviction and it didn't disturb the life sentences either. It was specifically, I believe, uh, just as to the death penalty. And so so
1: there's a separate part of the decision that also disturbed some of the convictions in light of subsequent Supreme Court decisions that have narrowed some of these relevant criminal statutes, but not the sort of centerpiece convictions. So Um, A couple of the convictions got wiped away, but not ones that would have necessarily materially affected the sentence. All right. So do you think –
0: I don't know if there's already been a statement from DOJ about this, from the U.S. Attorney's Office, about whether they will uh, relitigate the death penalty phase, which I assume is all that would have to be done here, the death penalty phase, which is –
1: They have to to pick another jury, right? And then they'd have to, I assume – at the very least, yes, rehold a, a sentencing phase, which is, I guess, then the question is is that odd that you'd have a different jury? I don't even know if you can do that. Can you have a different jury doing the sentence than the one that did? I mean, I feel like they're going to, I feel like otherwise they'd have to retry.
0: Um, I think it probably just means that the litigation of, I, I don't know, but I think the litigation phase would just be far more complex and involved than what you could accomplish with the necessary efficiencies that come with
1: following with the same jury. I I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm just not sure if I'm – I mean, if I'm the U.S. attorney for the district of Massachusetts, I'm not sure – I mean, even if it's just a sentencing hearing, and I'm not sure it is, and I feel pretty dumb that I don't actually know that off the top of my head. Um, I'm not even sure you want to go through that. I mean, I, I, you know, Masha Gessen, I don't know if you saw her piece in The New Yorker, but she had this really she, – she actually went to a good chunk of the voir dire and attended much of the trial. And she had, I thought, a really, really incisive and thoughtful essay – in the New Yorker about exactly why it was always going to be really, really hard to pick a jury in this case. Um, And why, you know, the sort of looking for a a quote, impartial jury unquote may actually just be a fool's errand in this context.
0: Isn't it? uh, So there's a, there's a certain obvious truth in all extremely high profile uh, violent crime scenarios, including especially terrorism cases. This is, this is always going to be the case, right? So if you're trying, you know, KSM, if you're trying um, any, any famous uh, defendant for an extremely notorious crime, especially one that's highly concentrated as not just uh, an attack on the victims, but as an attack on the, the populace of the place in which the trial by the Constitution must take place or some, something close to it, um, you're always going to have this problem. And then the question becomes just, well, how far away from Boston would you have to get? And is it, is it realistic to think the problem would be especially different if it was somewhere else? In Massachusetts or even New England. Um, and, and I, again, this is far from my expertise, but I, I do believe there is a, a certain amount of tolerance of, of tension there that goes on when allowing these cases to proceed. And it just kind of has to be when the entire nation is aware of a particular fact pattern. The idea that you couldn't find, you know, 12, 16, you know, with alternates, People in in the Boston area who are willing to say, yeah, I know all about this, I'm very concerned about it, but I'm willing to judge this fairly. That doesn't seem like too much of a
1: stretch in in such a large metropolitan area. I I mean, they tried. Um, I you know, I guess to me this is, you know, this feels different to me from like the KSM question because, you know, I think Boston, like the marathon bombing was just, I think and, and and the sort of the The search for the bombers in the ensuing days was just such a traumatic event for Boston specifically that I'm not sure even like folks who live in, say, New Haven, right, or Providence or, I don't know, Portland, Maine, right, would feel it the same way. And so I guess, you know, I I don't know, Bobby, what the answer is. But I mean, Masha's point, or at least one of the points Masha makes in her essay, which I think really resonated with me is, you know, we are to some degree just indulging with fiction in this whole process anyway. I mean, the notion that, you know, we're picking a, quote, death-eligible jury, meaning that we're already cutting off that chunk of the population that's opposed to the death penalty, right? We're picking a death-eligible jury that... Um, Knows enough to sort of be willing to understand their role in the jury system, but doesn't, but but hasn't formed strong opinions about the case they're being asked to judge. Right. That's kind of my
0: point is that there's, there is a, there's a polite legal fiction in all such high fame cases. So I think about like the trial of the 1993, you know, in in the 1990s, New York, we had the World Trade Center original bombing and then the, uh, the larger, uh, Abdel Rahman plot, um, so-called tunnels and landmarks, uh, plot, um, this was not exactly analogous, but it wasn't that different from the Boston Marathon scenario. And, you know, it, it's hard to imagine that there was any juror in that case who hadn't had some awareness of some of what was going on there uh, in in the city at that time. And I think that sort of thing comes up all the time. So I don't think it has to leave Boston. On the other hand, um, there's something to be said for, look, just pers- if you're going to pursue the death penalty to be re- reinstated, which I think they, they almost certainly will. um is it smart to embrace the idea of changing venue so that you can take this particular issue off the table, um, or is it enough just to take extra care when they go back to the well to pick a new jury? I don't know. It seems like if you could do it in an easier way that's less likely to be vulnerable on appeal as this turned out to be, why not try that? Um, is there anything else to say?
1: I mean, I just I I couldn't help the sort of the overlap, right? Or at least the 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 to me the connection between the Sarnayev ruling um, and a lot of what's going on in Guantanamo, right? And it just seems to me that one of the things that the First Circuit decision drives home is just how much harder pers- the, the policy decision, Bobby, to pursue the death penalty, right, makes these cases. That, that you know, whether wh- whatever one thinks about the death penalty legally and morally, just the policy choice to pursue a capital sentence as opposed to life without parole create so many additional layers of complexity in these cases and create so many additional um, potential pitfalls for prosecutors to stumble on, right? Whether willfully or not. And I just, I just, I continue to go back to not fully understanding the affirmative normative case for pursuing the death penalty in this context anyway, even for those who are not abolitionists, right? Just because it's that it's going to cost so much more money. It's going to be that much more harder to actually secure the right conviction It's going to be so much harder for the government to make its case. In Guantanamo, it's, you know, opening the government up to all kinds of reciprocal discovery it would not otherwise have been open to. I mean, I just I I, it seems to me that we're not doing a good job of weighing costs and benefits in this space.
0: Well, you know, so as as you framed it, so assume we're talking about someone who is not opposed to the the death penalty in principle that supports it being used in the right cases. Yeah. you know, if if these examples aren't the right cases, I don't know what are. These are these are the most depraved, or these are among the most depraved possible acts. Uh, these acts of intentional murder and maiming. So if you're if you're going to do it at all, it will always be extremely more difficult than just pursuing a life sentence. Just as you say, for all the reasons you say, it comes at a cost.
1: But if, no, right. if it's but stupid, guess, guess, these are the ones to do it, right? So, so I, I certainly take that point. I, I guess here there's a distinction between Sarnayev and and the 911 case because in Sarnayev I think a lot could have been a lot of this could have been avoided with a better jury voir dire and potentially a change of venue, right? And I think that's the, the sort of the the what if question is what if those things had happened right up front right. in the 9, in the 911 case? I mean. I, I'm certainly not gonna, you know, say anything positive about KSM's culpability. Um, but we did torture the guy, <laughs> and and you know, I think that like the had if we had clean hands and everything that happened to KSM after he entered U.S. custody, I think this would be a different conversation. Because part of what I think is so responsible for dragging the Guantanamo questions to a halt is litigation uniquely related to the mistreatment of these guys, litigation that would be largely by the, you know, irrelevant if we weren't seeking the death penalty. So that's, that's just why I've got stuck here.
0: So yeah, yeah. I guess to me that that's just an argument for not comparing the two because the, the issues okay. that get are, are unique. Um, well, so it, it is, uh, it, the key thing, I think a lot of people misunderstood when they heard this news. I think they thought that the entire conviction had come unwound. It is not. Um, yeah. the, the, least from the government's perspective, the least they're going to get out of this is life sentence. You know, Sarnia is not going free. They're not going to relitigate the conviction. Um, I do think that they'll probably try to re-secure the death penalty and eventually they'll, they'll probably get it, but you never know uh, with juries. So we'll find out. Um, All right. Should we pivot over to the, uh, to Trumplandia, which gives us a bevy of, of executive orders. And as you say, memoranda, um, How about we start with TikTok and WeChat? Okay. So that all our teenage listeners can stay focused on the things. All three of them. All three. You think it's three? Could be two. Um, Actually, I'd be surprised if any, but if you're a teenage listener, that's great. Thank you. You're very welcome to be here. And we want to talk about this uh, very rapid pivot from a situation in which we were talking only really for the most part about TikTok, though there was... Rumbling about WeChat in the background just wasn't getting the same attention. Um, TikTok owned TikTok, which was originally a Chinese-owned company called Musical.ly, was bought a while back by a Chinese company, ByteDance. What has any of this got to do with the U.S.? Well, Musical.ly's basic basic purpose was it was it was selling uh, it was the platform providing the short-form video sort of model service in the United States and was proving explosively popular. ByteDance had something similar from within China. What ByteDance wanted to do was to have a subsidiary that would be its sort of non-China operation. Musical.ly was identified as the best vehicle for that. They acquired it, changed the name to TikTok. Excellent branding, by the way. Um, TikTok becomes the the short form video service that is the dominant platform. In the United States, India, a bunch of places all around the world outside of China. Bydance has its own thing like that within China. Um, it's of interest to the United States because it's a it's an entity operating with a substantial presence in the U.S. market, and for purposes of review by the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, good old CFIUS, transactions involving even fully foreign entities, but where there's a where there's a substantial U.S. business presence, can be subjected to CFIUS review where there's reasons to be concerned on national security grounds. And the transaction had already occurred, but CFIUS review can happen after the, after the fact. And when TikTok kind of got into the uh, attention sphere of, shall we say, older Americans, um, after there were stories being published in the thick of some of the Hong Kong political suppression that was going on uh, last year, there was a lot of talk about how, well, look, TikTok is... Uh, Quietly censoring here and there, suppressing sort of hon- Hong Kong Liberty content, and doing things in general that would that would favor uh, the Communist Party of the Chinese Communist Party's interest, and so this began to cause people on the Hill to hassle the executive branch about why wasn't there a CFIUS review back when TikTok was being acquired by by Dance to begin with? We we should have intervened there, and the implication was maybe either because of the censorship concern, or increasingly people started saying because of the possibility that the rem- the remarkable amount of data about user activity, including off of the app that the TikTok user agreement uh, authorizes, maybe there's also sort of a, a backdoor in intelligence espionage type concern involving the ability of the Chinese government, if it wishes, to lean on ByteDance and reach into TikTok and acquire data on U.S. Uh, U.S. users. So these things kind of combined into the basis for an after-the-fact CFIUS review, and that's been going on and kind of dragging on uh, with the possibility looming in the background that ByteDance would be told that it has to divest itself of any U.S. operations. Um, and then you layer in Tulsa, which we talked about on this show, and you layer in the extent to which TikTok was an organizing vehicle through which a lot of uh, young people, uh, shall we say, screwed with the uh, registration process for the president's big Tulsa rally, creating a situation where it looked like on paper this vast horde of people were going to show up. But, of course, the vast majority of them had no intention of showing up there. Um and, and that, of course, makes this of interest in the Oval Office. And suddenly the president is saying he's and, – and then you lay around on top of that the president's very strong electoral interest in trying to portray himself as the one who's tough on China, the one that China doesn't like, and that, 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 you know, a vote for Biden, somehow vote for China, that sort of thinking. All this stuff goes into a stew and you get the president suddenly threatening to take action, maybe even invoking other – powers, which, of course, later gets filled in as IEPA powers to take action, because who knows what the CFIUS process was going to do? That's not the president's process. But IEPA, for better or worse, as this show has endlessly documented, allocates and delegates to the president uh, broad foreign commerce sanctioned authorities that are just at his fingertips as long as he's willing to say, I hereby declare a national emergency as to Situation X, or even better, if he can point to some existing national emergency declaration and say, ah, this situation now before me, it relates to that existing national secu- uh, national emergency declaration. That's what ultimately happened a few days back. And for good measure, uh, perhaps reflecting the fact that many people observed that if the problem with TikTok is that there's user data, and risk of censorship, well, TikTok pales in comparison to WeChat in terms of the centrality of the platform, the amount of censorship, the, degree, the, the amount of user data. Um, and both of them end up on the, uh, the wrong end of IEPA sanctions, although the sanctions themselves, I would characterize Steve right now as being not fully uh, set in stone exactly what the sanction is. So this is where it gets really murky they uh, the the two sanction orders reference an existing uh, national emergency involving uh, communications and information technologies that it's a, it's an executive order about supply chain risk that was all about sort of Huawei and ZTE in the first instance but was framed broadly as potentially being um, applicable to a, a variety of, of things including I think a reasonable fit here with with uh, online communication platforms and services like TikTok and WeChat, um, as it happens, I, as I've learned just the other day, I, had, I wasn't aware of this. The Secretary of Commerce has been for a while in the process of promulgating uh, final regulations to flesh out how this pre-existing IEPA sanction regime will work. And it's it's relevant. I want to say something about it here because in my my posting on this at Lawfare, I hadn't covered this yet, but I'm going to cover it later. Um, in that context, the Secretary of Commerce in developing regulations to explain the general way that supply, trai- supply chain risk should be managed for these kinds of technologies um, gets into a little more detail than any of the actual executive orders do as to what exactly is being prohibited. And the key uh, undefined word here is transaction. Transactions are prohibited. And there's a temptation to look at transaction as applicable to say, for example, the the purchasing of Musical.ly, or or you could go beyond corporate transactions and talk about, well, how about WeChat's uh, transaction when it has an internet service provider support system in the United States to distribute its content? Uh, Or could it be the leasing of commercial real estate or a contract with lawyers or lobbyists? All these things sound like transactions. They all sound contractual. But what about users? simply downloading their app or uploading content to the app or accessing the app, receiving content from the app. Does, does transaction cover that? The regs make clear, it's one line, but they make clear that using the services of the sanctioned entity counts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's been pushback. Know. There's been pushback in the comments that have been filed on the regs. The regs are not final yet, but all this is in the background and is known to the people, no doubt, who are drafting the new WeChat-specific and TikTok-specific orders. And we should think of the way I now understand it is these orders sort of jump ahead because the existing framework isn't finalized yet. But these these orders jump ahead and say, all right, for sure, we're at least covering TikTok and WeChat. But there's still this question of to what extent does interaction with those entities uh become subject to a, an a violation, which is criminal in nature, and there are civil penalties too. And the orders say the Secretary of Commerce has 45 days to clarify what transactions with these entities are going to be forbidden. The implication being that the Secretary could go real broad and, fr- and make criminals of all the teenagers of America if they keep using the app. Uh, it can go real narrow, and the Secretary can, can limit the forbidden set of transactions to contractual things that the corporate entity is doing, leaving all the users out of it. Uh, we have no idea which way it's going to go. So that's the state of affairs. Uh, Steve comments, thoughts,
1: reactions. Um, I, I think, I mean, first of all, I, I, I think we can, we can both comfortably say, Hey, we told you so. Um, yeah. right? About IEPA and about just how, broadly it can be manipulated to do things that might not seem like they're necessarily appropriate or wise. Um, I, I was struck, Bobby, was I was at Friday night when the order dropped, um, and I was struck by the the rampant confusion over whether it applied to some of the major video game manufacturers, right? Because the order was not worded very carefully.
0: Yeah. So Thursday night it dropped, and immediately when people saw WeChat was in on this, a lot of people said, well, hold on. If all transactions broadly understood involving WeChat are, are now forbidden or in 45 days will be forbidden. What does that mean for WeChat's uh, 5% stake in Tesla? What does it mean for its substantial stake in Activision Blizzard? What does it mean for its stake in Snap? It WeChat's a big, uh, high revenue company that's invested in lots of different platforms, especially in the video game industry. Sure. And, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier. It depends on what counts as transaction. The secretary I think it's very likely may say that no transaction doesn't extend to you know these investments. But then again, if they want to ramp up the pressure, maybe that's exactly what he says is covered. Uh, I would say an an investment, investment. An investment's a classic example of a transaction. It certainly could be. I mean, so it's all about how, how much pressure, how much squeezing does the Secretary of Commerce authorize against WeChat. And and then of course that takes place in the shadow of how much squeezing China may
1: decide to do in return. Right. Especially, I mean, and I, I know this is at least o- overtly unrelated, but I can't help but also mark the note, some of the developments in Hong Kong in the last 24 to 48 hours, which have been very dark in that respect.
0: Which is a great illustration of how it's it's a iterative game. It's not a one player, one move game. So this is referring to the fact that obviously there have been a series of, of IEPA type sanctions, maybe IEPA sanctions, I guess they were, although I'm not actually sure it was IEPA, it could have been Magnitsky Act, I don't know. But but the same basic powers being exercised, uh, targeting Hong Kong officials who are, let's be clear, uh, destroying Hong Kong, crushing, crushing what freedoms remain there, and giving the lie to all the agreements China made when it took over uh, Hong Kong and the UK ceded uh, authority. Um, and it's really it's just a travesty, including by the way in, in charges filed against people who who long ago moved away from China and became citizens of the United States, the United Kingdom. It's terrible. Um, so there have been sanctions, I think rightly so. But then China responded today by <laughs> sanctioning a variety of senators and you know, Ken Roth and, and you know, all these sort of like prominent critics of them. Um, and it both shows you that two can play this game, but I think also shows you that it matters a lot more still when the United States plays the game than when China does. Um, the fact that Tom Cotton uh, cannot uh you know has been sanctioned by the chinese i don't think is nearly the problem for him as it as when america sanctions certain chinese officials if they've got any money in a system outside the united states that's a much bigger problem i doubt tom cotton views this as anything other than a, a badge of honor um and i think rightly so um going back to the trade war context though which is what this is really about uh you you have a real risk especially when you bring wechat you know wechat's not bite dance bite dance and tiktok Matter a great deal. They're very interesting, and they have this big market share. In five years from now, they might have just gone the way of MySpace, for all we know. Uh, WeChat's a huge deal. WeChat's not just for chat; it's for payments. It's it's a it's foundational to the online life of certainly a vast number of people in China, but also the the, the Chinese uh, speaking community around the globe. It's extremely popular, and so. Th- th- that can't be ignored or brushed off or or taken on to the same extent that the sanction of TikTok can. Um, so I, you know, I, I guess I don't see it as quite as, pro- obviously I think you see it as very problematic. I don't see it as necessarily problematic that we took these steps. I, I'm not so sure about the execution. I'm yeah. not saying I think these are definitely something things that I'm glad to see done, but I do think there are real concerns here and that the, General asymmetry between the United States and China between, um, you know, let, let me back up and say it this way. Um, our action against TikTok and WeChat shouldn't be understood as, all right, so there was nothing happening. And now the United States starts leaning on Chinese companies. I think the right way to look at it is that China has been extraordinary in their unwillingness to allow a variety of American companies to operate in China, whereas we've pretty much allowed Chinese companies to operate here. This is the beginning of a little pushback, uh, but I actually think that the, the margin still or the, the balance of payments, as it were, still leans way heavily towards the Chinese side in terms of uh, where American companies are allowed to, act, to operate in China. So well,
1: I, I don't disagree with any of that, and I'm not actually sure at the end of the day that I think this move is unwise. I, am just, I have not been impressed thus far with how it's been implemented to date. And so I, I have concerns that there's a good idea here that's being implemented very poorly. Yeah, I'm totally on board with you there. I think that makes sense.
0: Uh, you know, It'll be very interesting to see in the 45-day mark, right. what exactly does the Secretary of Commerce come out with? And it could come out in a... There's a world in which it comes out with a, a pretty targeted and smartly framed understanding of just what's covered and what's not. Um it's worth observing here too that with TikTok as many people have observed there's an off ramp uh Microsoft wants to buy it uh they want to sell at this point but, but Trump wants a cut of the profits <laughs> yes it, you know it's just amazing right so he talked about how he thinks there should be key money which in the commercial so key money is a legitimate term of art in commercial real estate in residential real estate it refers to bribing the landlord um yeah. So just to be clear, there is no – it is true that in the CFIUS review process, there are statutory uh, fees that to be that paid for the review process. That's C- not what the president's C- talking C- about.
1: Fees C- that are not a percentage of the cut.
0: No, no. He just uh, – this is like uh, the Iraqi oil, the Syrian oil, which by the way – I don't know if you're following this, but apparently there is some deal in place for some American companies to start developing a, a SDF-controlled – Kurdish-controlled Syrian oil fields. Um, You know, that, I think, is a story waiting to explode a little bit. It remains to be seen how in the world are they going to get their oil safely out of those areas of of the Kurdish-controlled regions. But anyways.
1: While while we're on that subject, before we get to the other more domestic-facing executive orders, I think we would be remiss if we didn't say a little bit about Beirut.
0: Oh, yeah. God, it's
1: awful. Um, Do you... uh, I. I mean, there's there's obviously. I mean, I don't don't think there's an obvious. I mean, I leaving aside the president's preposterous initial statement that it was obviously a bomb, um, which no one else now is seriously contending, right? That that it was an attack. I think were his words, and that that's what quote the generals told me unquote. Um, Which, by the way, seems just made up. That oh, totally made up. Um, So putting that aside, I mean, I think this is just you know, the first and most important thing to say is just how how terrible a situation this is and how deeply i grieve for you know the folks who were killed for the thousands and tens and even hundreds of thousands of of lebanese nationals now who are out of homes who are you know who are already facing a huge public health crisis and now that's topped on a real humanitarian crisis i mean it's just a terrible situation um the you know there's there's a small part of me that also wants to say and a pretty powerful reminder of the laxity of many of our international shipping rules and regulations, and maybe a need to reconsider that, but that's that's a long-standing problem that the U.S. is not exactly going to solve by itself.
0: The uh, so completely agree, on all the sympathy for the, the people of Lebanon. This is awful. Um, you got me to thinking about how there's, for obvious reasons, been tremendous protesting in the streets. This is not coming out of the blue. Lebanon's problems. I'm not going to be able to describe them here, but they're long-standing. Um, but it reminds me that in Belarus, um, currently we have, uh, people in the streets fighting to, uh, call attention to what was obviously a rigged election. Um, it's, it's pretty horrifying. I'm, I'm worried, you know, we, we've now had a lot of experience since the time of the Arab spring and, and authoritarians around the world have had a lot of experience looking at, uh, what they can and can't get away with under certain circumstances. What happens if they don't, uh, crack down. I'm, I'm very worried for all the people in Belarus who are bravely going into the streets to fight for their liberty. And I'm afraid they're going to end up getting the Hong Kong treatment. And to tie it back into uh, to the US role in all this, what a horrifying shame it is that we cannot have currently strong, clear, or any statements out of the Oval Office which that maybe is. I'm wrong. Maybe there's been some statement, at least in the president's name. But so far as I know, we're not getting statements about. We're certainly not getting anything about what's going on in Belarus. I don't. I don't know what statements out of the White House we've gotten about what's going on in Hong Kong. Although there, at least, I would think that the president's uh, self-interest allows him to be critical of China. His his tendency is to be critical of China. He will never say a word against Russia, but he'll be happy to say negative things about. Hong Kong, um, I assume. But th- but that disparity just underscores the the weirdness, the suspicious weirdness of his of his appreciation and uh kowtowing to Moscow.
1: And the bankruptcy of our foreign policy and his inclination to not be too hard on strong men like, you know. What's his name? Lukashenko. I mean, I just, no, I mean uh,
0: yeah, no, his, his, his positive affinity towards it, which is well, well-established. It's clear.
1: So the, the Belarus hits a little close to home for me because, you know, my, I mean, my, all eight of my great grandparents were Russian immigrants and all eight of them were from a part of Russia that is today Belarus. Yeah. Um, Eastern, Northeastern Belarus, sort of the part that's closer to, to the Russian. And, and, you know, it's First of all, just seeing what's happening is shocking. But second, the, the competing headlines, right? Some of the major media organizations are getting it just right. And some are like, you know, embattled president, you know, responding to violent protests. It's like, no. <laughs> yeah, like I know, you know, I
0: know when President Xi calls up the guy who just rigged the election and says, congratulations, you have our full support. Um, and I, I'm sure Venezuela's checked in as well. And uh, I think Moscow might have been the first place to
1: call. And and was, and this the last thing saying, and it just it's just a powerful um, illustration of how much soft power the United States has lost in such a short time. Yeah. Um, that like it's not to, not only are we not saying anything about these things, but like no one's looking to us to do it. Um, one really one just visual image from from Beirut that I just wanted to flag that really hit me. Um, I don't know if you saw this picture that the Tel Aviv City Hall they lit up with the Lebanese flag.
0: Oh, that's cool. No, I did not and, see that.
1: And I really, you know, I those sort of small gestures of solidarity, I think, are, are you know, there are too few of those in our world today.
0: Yeah, that reminds me of the Le Monde headline after 9-11. So on the on the 12th, they had that great, uh, we're all Americans. We're all Americans. I won't, I won't try to say it in French. Yeah. Uh, all
1: right. That's like that great commercial. Je, je suis un espion. Espion. Right? The one he's like, he's, like, he's, try, he's trying to say I'm, a, I'm an American. And he says I'm a spy. I've not seen that one. What's it? What do you remember the product? I mean, so I don't know. great
0: cover commercials. I often remember the, the theme. By the way, do you remember that that old Coke commercial where it's like um, a guy and a gal in I think they're somewhere in Europe, and he's they're flirting, but they're trying to figure out if they speak the same language, and they try Spanish and French and all this stuff. And of course, the, the sharing the Coke is what what bridges. The the Coke gal. is the universal language. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, poor Coca Cola used to be such an icon. All right, let's talk about these uh, this other bevy.
1: American Express commercial.
0: What's that? It
1: might be an American Express commercial.
0: Okay. All right. See, advertising it works. Um, We've got a quartet of presidential actions uh, that were all framed by the White House as uh, you know, if Congress can't deliver a COVID relief bill, we'll lead the president. Well, okay. So, and and this got this is taken. He's taken a lot of criticism for this, and so let's see if we can drill down and pick out maybe all of it's worth criticizing, maybe only certain parts of it are worth criticizing. I, I went through it and I thought there was a lot here that I think if you just sort of separated it from the larger Trump show and you said, hey, here's a situation, here was an action the White House took, anything wrong with this? I think most of this looks pretty reasonable.
1: I, have two, then, I have two generic reactions. The first is if we properly describe what the actions are, Right. I think that's an important starting point because a lot of what the White House is describing bears very little resemblance to what it's actually doing. Good point.
0: Um, so, so if we so pause to say that there's rhetoric that is distorting or even, uh, you know, misstating the nature of the intervention here. And that itself, obviously, anything like that, anything dishonest or, or inaccurate is problematic
1: in and of itself. And then at least one of these actions is... Um, to me, you know, so such so out of a piece with some of the stuff that the Republicans, you know, scream from the rooftops about when Obama did. So there's there's both the sort of um, overclaiming what they're doing, and there's the hypocrisy about this being appropriate that sort of bothers me. Like I, I I I agree on the bottom line that I think most of what's in these four memos is actually okay with one exception. Um, but um, right, these are the same people who you know gave speeches decrying Obama's anti-constitutional agenda for having the temerity to do, you know, to to make similar claims based on statutes or on prior, you know, prior situations. I mean, I just... So let's zero in on
0: figuring out, separate this sort of the wheat from the chaff so I can understand where it's where it's giving that reaction to you.
1: So I think maybe we can pick off a few of these quickly and easily. So, so one anything thing wrong with that, it, the least time talking about is the eviction moratorium because it does nothing. Well, let's... let's Let's do that. I actually want to say a few things about that because I think there's there's
0: fascinating federalism yeah. issues there to talk about. Um, so the student loan uh, repayment deference—nothing yeah. wrong with that, right? It's yeah. just direct. It directs the Department of Education to uh, try to do things to delay student loan payments. Delay, but not forgive,
1: right? So, so kick in the can. Yes, but the. Sure, I mean they could do more. This is true. No, 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 no. no. Wait, yeah. I, I'm not. That's not criticism, Bobby. It's just. It's just for for folks to understand what's happening, right? This is not saying we're wiping out your student loan payments. It's just saying we're going to give you a bit yeah. of a holiday. No, it's forbearance.
0: Yeah, yeah. forbearance. Um, so maybe uh, let's look next at the deferred, because I think similar in kind the the payroll tax business. So there is a, a specific provision in the Internal Revenue Code. 26 US code 7508a which is expressly designed for a situation where there's a disaster that's been properly declared under the Stafford Act which there has been here and it and it authorizes the treasury department to again not waive but to forbear or postpone the obligation to make payroll tax payments uh, in both cases but i think much more so with this one there is a larger uh, communications public policy problem where there are going to be people who misunderstand this and think that that the additional money in their paycheck is money they get to keep. When all it is is money that they should be setting aside to be able to pay their tax later on. In some cases, this will be good because they're not going to have taxes later on and will get the money sooner, and that's great. But there's going to be some problems. There are some people who are going to get caught out in this and they are going to get hit with the tax bill they weren't expecting later on. the The order goes out of its way to say the Treasury Department should explore avenues, that's the language, including legislation, to actually make the the deferred payments go away altogether. But that's just saying like, hey, see, see if you can come up the way to make them not have to pay. But that just requires legislation. And that legislation presumably would have to account for the fact that this is the mechanism for paying for Social Security and, and Medicare, I mean. Medicare.
1: So Wait, you, mean we, you mean we ought to discuss Social Security and Medicare when we talk about payroll tax forbearance? Right, so so there's so, but that's all. So as a matter of policy, there's I, a lot
0: of criticism. I,
1: I was a little critical on Twitter of 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 a a commentator who wrote several lengthy blog posts about why this was all perfectly appropriate and didn't mention Social Security or Medicare once.
0: So I think the takeaway there is there is that important line of policy criticism. However, there is benefit. There's real benefit, despite that, to having uh, to getting to put off your tax payments. There will be more money people's if, if you there.
1: understand that it's
0: forbearance. Yeah. That that was the thing I said before. So with that, that, yeah. So anyway, that's that's why, that's why I, I led with the problematic part and well, then mentioned that there is some benefit here. But the key thing is, legally speaking, this is this
1: is entirely proper. This is completely. Yeah. Here's the problem. The problem is, is that um, when the bill comes due, right, which is going to be I think January under the under the order, um, right? One of two things is going to be true. It's either going to be with reelected President Trump right? But probably at least one chamber controlled by Democrats. Or you have the very real possibility of a, you know, brand new President Biden, for whom like one of his first legislative initiatives is this incredibly messy fight over whether to forgive the payroll tax forbearance, and in the process, take a huge chunk out of Social Security and Medicare, right? Or whether his first move is going to be to sort of, you know, not do that. And therefore, basically, I mean, it'll be portrayed incorrectly as Biden massively raising taxes on Americans.
0: But there's there's no question that uh, President Biden, if that's how it turns out, is going to be left holding the bag on all kinds of crazy stuff. And this is definitely one of them. So 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 far, we haven't identified the legal, the legally sensitive stuff. We've, we've just been kind of covering the policy aspects. So we've got the the renters and homeowners uh, intervention, which has some elements that seem, you know, obviously clearly within the power of, you know, uh, statutory authority. So when when Treasury and HUD are told to find ways to use HUD funds to support renters and homeowners, that
1: that's there's nothing controversial, I think, about that. Um, if, if, if you didn't go further, I mean, so so FEMA actually does have express statutory authority to use FEMA funds directly right well i I hadn't gotten to that yet that i was
0: i was trying to cite the parts i'm trying to make the point that there's a whole bunch of stuff here that's perfectly fine it's like legally clearly within the authority of the president to do it there are multiple directives to housing and urban development to do certain things they're all fine federal housing finance agencies gets directives all these are very reasonable and, and these things aren't even controversial as a
1: policy matter these are just interventions to help people um then do, you think, do, do you think they weren't doing these things already? Like, I mean, I, a lot of this struck me as just sort of like you know, keep doing what you're doing, everybody. Could be, could be, or maybe in I don't know, in this administration, maybe so, but
0: maybe not. Maybe until the White House actually said to do this, maybe they didn't think so. I actually would love to know if they really were doing all they could do. So the two pieces here, you, you mentioned the FEMA one. So let's talk about that. FEMA is told to draw 44 billion dollars
1: from the disaster relief account, which has like 80 billion. In it. Oh, I think you misunderstood. I was talking about. I'm sorry. Before we get to the to, before we get to unemployment, can I still? I, I thought. I yeah. thought. I, I was talking about FEMA and housing. Um, there's nothing mm-hmm. in the There's nothing in the housing order about FEMA, but there could have been. Like this is. Ah, this okay. So what's that? Tell me about that. Well, FEMA has explicit statutory authority to use some of the funds that we're about to talk about um, to actually directly help. Um, relieve homeowners. Right. right? Like,
0: we saw this in Katrina. This was like something people used to pay a lot of attention to.
1: Exactly so. And so I actually think what's revealing about the housing order is that there's no activation of clear, unambiguous authority. I mean, if folks want to read the statute, it's 42 USC section 5174, titled Federal Assistance to Individuals and Households. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to me, especially given what we're about to talk about with the unemployment stuff, that the housing order is mostly just, hey guys, go do what you can, and where there's actually an agency with express authority to intervene directly with a ton of money, they don't pull the trigger.
0: So that's really weird. I don't understand why they wouldn't. Because they had
1: other plans for FEMA.
0: Um, okay, yeah, unpack that. So, because there's $80 billion available, obviously they need to make sure they don't drain FEMA entirely uh, for the year. The, so with a new
1: hurricane season, yeah, already. hurricane
0: season and all the rest. They, I think the order says something like 25 Five, twenty, twenty-five billion needs to be set aside for that, but then that there's a gap of about sixteen billion there. I think that could be used for the authority you're talking about. So yeah. I, I think this maybe is a little more misfeasance than malfeasance.
1: I'm just, I, I just, it just goes to why we ought to resist the 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 White House's framing of like President Trump doing everything he can to help the American homeowner. Well, actually, no, he's not doing everything he can.
0: Yeah, there's this is well, that's a useful further thing they could do. So. Yeah. So what he is doing in the unconventional thing he's doing with FEMA is he's saying, hey, 44 billion of this, let's direct it towards um, unemployment boosts. Right. Let's try to supply because part of what failed in Congress was uh, boosting and, and resupplying some of the needed unemployment insurance funds. So the idea is by statute, you can I think you can direct the money this way. Um, but it's gotta be done on a, on a three to one, 75%, 25% federal state matching basis. So the directive says FEMA take up to 44 billion, run it through the states. If the states will cooperate with you for a state, they'll cooperate with you. And the idea is, uh, $300 a week from the federal government, $100 a week from the state would as a sort of an uneven match go into the system. Um, I think, legally speaking, that's all sort of as the statute allows. I don't know that there's any funny business or any problems there. I, I get it that there, there are policy
1: uh, concerns surrounding whether this is the right way to go. But is it legally problematic? So David Super at Georgetown thinks so. Um, so David wrote, I think, a really interesting blog post over the weekend on balkanization on Saturday that's worth reading. And I tweeted about it. Um, and what David points to is... Um, is that the Stafford Act, the relevant provision, imposes two conditions on this kind of use of the disaster relief fund for what the statute calls disaster unemployment assistance. Um, The first is that FEMA can only provide disaster unemployment assistance to those who are not eligible for any other form of unemployment compensation. And of course, this program is limited to those who are receiving other unemployment benefits. That seems a rather big problem. And Well, I'll tell you how they're getting around it, and you tell me if you buy it. And then the second, statu- the statute caps such benefits at the amount that the state programs would allow, and the whole point of this program is to pay four hundred dollars more than the state benefits. Also, right? that sounds like a big problem. So I think the way that the White House is trying to get around this is formally not calling this um, unemployment compensation.
0: Oh, that's why they say administer it via the state unemployment insurance system, rather than saying this is
1: additional funding for the unemployment insurance. And what's so ridiculous about that, Bobby, is that all of the people they're sending out to talk about it on television keep calling it unemployment compensation. Well, right, because politically, you can't get the benefit if you're not. Uh, um, well, that sounds like at some
0: point, so the interesting question, and I get I get it now because I saw some line, I didn't know what the context was, where some reporter asked the president, like, aren't you concerned? This is going to be litigated. And he's like, look, if somebody wants to
1: stop this, I mean, I don't know. Well, right. Are they <laughs> just kind of hoping that no one will litigate this? I mean, who would want to, right? Like, I mean, the who has an incentive to do it? So the only people... So here's the other problem that David points out, which is separate from the legal problem. You also have the sort of the administrability problem, which is, you know, states are on the hook under this program for what? One quarter of the payments, right? And by
0: statute, like has the money only can flow that way
1: with the one quarter. Right, but we're talking about states that are already well tapped out on their budgets. Like, I mean, the where's that you know, state
0: what, from? The White House says there's a... There are billions of unused funds from the CARE Act. Now, that's a that's a factual descriptive claim that I have no idea if that's true or
1: not. But they're saying so that
0: David, there's David, a lot of money
1: there. So David toff says this in his blog post, right? So he's and this is why I encourage everyone to read David's blog post. Um, Although the president states that eighty billion of the fiscal relief CARES provides is unspent, the great majority of that has already been committed in state and local budgets in ways that cannot be undone without creating a further hole or reneging on commitments to local government. So that's, that's the billion dollar question. And or the so uh, there I mean so there plus there's also the awkwardness of how this only actually applies to people who are receiving between a hundred dollars of right like this actually doesn't apply to the poorest slice of the population. So, so so but yeah so
0: the I guess the takeaway is that this one unlike the other ones we talked about so far there is potentially on point statutory authority that they've got this sort of kind of. Cute or clever workaround that's basically a rhetorical workaround that probably I would imagine if there were litigation, a court would probably be obliged to say, yeah, no, this is the statute was you can't dodge it by just you can't say the Korean War is a police action and have it not be armed conflict, right? So same deal. But there is this practical question of whether any state AG or other state that I don't even know how this would work because you'd need a state governor. This only even flows. The money only flows if a state governor makes the request. So you'd have to have one of a system. You'd have a system like Texas where you have a, um, a, a plural executive branch where the governor and the AG are not aligned because the AG seems like the natural actor to actually litigate it. Or where the or governor tries to take the money, but then the AG
1: tries or to where take the, Or where the state wants the money, but a local government is actually going to be really screwed by it. Right. And so like a city. Sees.
0: And so maybe a city. And it, yeah. And then a city.
1: By the way, I don't know if you saw. So over the weekend in the Supreme Court, Justice Kagan issued a supplemental briefing order for uh, no more than 100 words because there actually was this question about whether uh, Oregon had unified or or, like whether the Oregon attorney general was actually representing the Oregon secretary of state in this case.
0: Right. And it was sort of in the nature of like, I want a I want a one word answer. Yes or no. X or Y. And I love that. I thought that was great. 100 words. No more. The reply.
1: 100 words. No more. 100 was
0: generous. Yes.
1: So, well, used eighty-seven of them. So there's, there's. Make- mm-hmm. So, so I think this is. First of all, I think this is a half measure. Second, I think it is targeted. It misses out on those who need the money the absolute most. Let's say the poorest parts of the population. Third, it's of dubious legality, and fourth, it's going to impose incredibly difficult administrative burdens on states, many of which already are past their breaking point from a budgetary perspective. So this is the one, Bobby, that I think is the most problematic from both a policy and legal standpoint.
0: So I have less of a policy problem with it. And so I just think that it, it's it's a political stunt if it's true that the 80 billion in CARES Act funds just are encumbered already and, and really no state as a practical matter can take advantage of it. If, hypothetically, if let's say there's out there you know, some billions somewhere that really aren't committed yet, and some governors willing to take advantage of this, then it's some help to some people. And I think, as a policy matter, that's if you didn't have the overclaiming for what it was, what it was, this I think this is not something to be criticized. But I think you've pointed out that there seems to be. You and David have pointed out that there's a, a clear statutory problem with what they're doing here. But this isn't. In, to me, that's just. That's just a statutory problem. It's not a separation of powers. What's the president doing? The question is whether the statute allows what he's doing. But but still, I'm wondering, where's the real sort of large, is there a real separation of powers? The president's kind of going off the rails here problem. Um, Let me turn to another candidate, unless you want to say more about this one. No, go ahead. So so we've also, in that same order, we've got the directive to uh, Health and Human Services and the CDC to explore... Not to do it, but to explore whether a ban, a ban, this would be a federal regulatory prohibition on evictions might be, quote, reasonably necessary to prevent the further spread of COVID-19 from one state of possession to another. That actually introduces a really interesting statutory question and and constitutional question in the background. Um, If they come out and say, yeah, we think that is necessary and here's a ban on evictions, can they do that? Well, you know, when this whole pandemic story first began to be something you and I talked about, we, we talked and we wrote a lot about the quarantine, Federal Quarantine Authority from 42 U.S. Code Section 264. Um, and that statute does contain the roots of the Federal Quarantine Authority, but it, but it begins with a broader delegation of authority. It authorizes the Surgeon General with approval from the Health and Human Services Secretary by the way, the Surgeon General's role is then delegated to the director of CDC. So it's Dr. Redfield uh, to, quote, make and enforce such regulations as in his judgment are necessary to prevent the spread of communicable diseases from one state or possession to another. And, and so that, if you read it for all it's worth, in theory, could be the basis for anything the CDC director is willing to say would help. Uh Obviously, the statute goes on to talk about border inspections in, and uh, quarantines as the obvious things one might expect to be done, but the language is is crazy broad. And so the question then becomes, so in this case, could Dr. Redfield say, yeah, I, I think that evictions are going to lead to homelessness, lead to to people moving around in vulnerable situations, and therefore, I think it's reasonably necessary to ban evictions. Well, can't do it. Here's why. I think you can't do it, although it's this isn't entirely clear. Same statute concludes in subsection E with the preemption provision. It says that nothing in this title or regs promulgated under the title quote may be construed as superseding any provision under state law including laws enacted by state subdivisions like cities. It this would seem to encompass property law, landlord tenant law, eviction law. Now, there's an exception to that limitation. And the exception says, except to the extent that such a provision conflicts with an exercise of federal authority under this section. So one might say, if you're still with me, this is getting down the weeds, but one might say if Dr. Redfield says we need to ban evictions in order to prevent uh, spread of disease, then that's an exercise of federal authority under this section. So therefore the state law has to give way. But in that case, doesn't the preemption provision do nothing? Doesn't that mean that every single thing that is done under color of this provision automatically overrides all contrary state law? And therefore, what, what is accomplished by this preemption section that turns it into a nullity? And if there's an available reading that makes it not a nullity, I think canon of statutory interpretation to save the statute, you got to save it as doing something. You got to re- adopt that uh, reading. And I think that the right way to read it, therefore, is let's say they issue a quarantine order. It's not on its terms overriding state law, but it might be that in the application of it, something federal officers are doing or something that's happening might be inconsistent with state law. The state law gets bumped out of the way by the force of that final exceptions clause. But what you can't do is issue a federal directive just to turn off state laws. Right. I think that's the right reading of it. So I think the answer that the lawyers at, at Health and Human Services and the CDC need to come to is... No, we cannot issue a federal directive overriding state property law. Full stop. Does that sound right? Yes. <laughs> okay. So um there may be more. I that's all I had on my list. Was there something else that's that's getting people's goat? Because there really was a lot of like, oh my God, look at the look at I what
1: you're doing so, here. Like, yeah, I think I mean I think not for the first time, not for the last time. I think folks are reacting in part to what the White House says it's doing as opposed to what it actually did um Fair. and so i think some of the fault for that you know rests with the white house right for for trying to make much more of this for for trying to sell a story that like the democrats wouldn't negotiate with us therefore we're doing this even though these are actually not even things republicans were supporting in the in the legislative proposals right i mean
0: that makes so much sense and that solves the mystery for me because i really haven't like Typical nerdy law guy, I'm like looking through these orders, trying to understand where the really inflammatory stuff is. But of course, I'm not reading and paying attention to what Trump is saying. And if he's saying, well, we're doing this, that, and the other, and it's not what he actually did, and if he's framing it anyways as they couldn't pass the bill, so I'm just enacting it, which is probably how it's coming across. And
1: that's, and that's, and that, and so the problem is that you have a president who is, um, Firing up his base by claiming to have done all of this stuff that's pissing off Democrats and that's like good for them, right? When in fact he's actually doing a fairly modest amount of stuff that he, where, he, as in like the housing context, where he could be doing a lot more, um, right? Where the you know the thing that I think folks are going to see the most directly, the payroll tax deferral is just going to come back to bite them in January. I mean, I agree with that. I do think people are going to get hosed
0: because they're not going to understand how this works.
1: So I just, you know, it's, it's once again, sort of rhetoric versus reality from this White House.
0: Well, and I do think also there's a sort of a, a further, it's a wave crashing into the, the mountain, eroding the big mountain of the rule of law when the president's rhetoric is Congress couldn't pass the bill. And if what he's saying in effect is, so I'm just going to do this directly, through my own powers, that continues to send this message that that's something that can be done when in our system, that is not something.
1: That but can- it's also and it's also how what Obama did with like DACA was was portrayed was also portrayed on the right. only then it was like the demise of the Republic, and even that wasn't accurate. I mean DACA was not the dream act you know turned into an executive order. It was a much weaker watered down version of it but but I digress.
0: well so should we should we lighten the mood with some frivolity here at the end?
1: Yes, let's. although I think our frivolity isn't very light. the big Ten just announced that they're not playing football this fall. So yeah,
0: the Big Ten's out. Does that take the other Power Four co- Power Five conferences? <laughs> Do they become the Power
1: Four? Is twenty no, I I, the road to the college football playoffs just get a lot easier? No, I think the road is crumbling under its I think I think the road's about to collapse. Um because I mean, yeah, it once they were already on conference only seasons, losing the Big Ten doesn't change the scheduling. But like, guys, the writing's on the wall. I mean You think
0: the SEC will fold? Because there's also, you know, there's there are politics to this. There's, there's. So here's, here's what's going to happen. I think the Pac-12 will be next. Yes. Right? In terms of like the surrounding environments, it makes sense that the Pac-12 and Big Ten would drop
1: before the SEC. ACC will ACC will be third, and then you're going to have a situation where the only schools left are the SEC and the Big Twelve. And and might they view that as extremely attractive as being the only ones playing? I think I think the administrator the athletic administrators will see that as extremely attractive and I think the university presidents will see that as extremely dangerous.
0: Yeah, if anything goes wrong, it, as your peers drop out, if things go badly in whichever mm-hmm. way they might go badly, you, ha- you look so much worse because other people showed you the path out. On the other hand, the temptation to be the only game literally the only games in town, as it were. Um, talk about an asterisk though, when the college football playoffs have, you know first of all, if it's the big twelve if it's the Big Twelve and the SEC, there better be a Big Twelve team in the playoffs. I'm calling a foul. If it's all SEC. Um, so you can imagine it becomes sort of a champion versus
1: champion. All playoff are Alabama, Georgia, Auburn, LSU. And LSU.
0: yeah. So a champion versus champion, uh, you know, qualified, limited, I guess, all southern uh college football championships. So it's, you know, whether it's UTOU or somebody up against LSU, Auburn, Alabama, whomever. I could see that. I think that I can imagine this happening. So this is all tied up in something that I think a lot of the the run-of-the-mill media coverage just isn't shedding any light on. This has got to be all tied up in the question of what are the TV contract effects if they, A, stay in place, B, shift to a spring schedule which is what some have talked about that's what the mac was was proposing to do now, i didn't hear that the big 10 was talking about shifting to a spring schedule but the reason that's so tricky is your your tv contracts this 25 percent of the revenue at least um they're tied up in a fall schedule that those those channels have other plans for what they're broadcasting in the spring now they may be in high stakes negotiation and all this to try to figure out uh can we get 80 percent of the contract if we shift to spring um and if you just cancel it all, then that money is entirely gone. But clearly, the money is driving a big part of what's going on here.
1: And 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 that's why I mean I, I tweeted about this. I mean I don't I don't you know I I, w- I would hate to be a a major college you know administrator or athletic director at this point because you know there are no good choices here. I mean, why don't they go with no fans
0: in the stand? Why isn't it? What's wrong with going with no fans in the stands and doing the major league? Slash NHL, they're not going to be able to do the NBA bubble fully. But why not do it? Major League Baseball
1: is doing with limited, you know, quasi bubbles. No fans. They can't impose the same constraints on the on the players, right? I mean, Major League Baseball. Look at Major League Baseball, right? Over the weekend, Major League Baseball had to change all of its protocols because way too many people were getting infected. And so, Major League Baseball, Bobby, is now they're not in a bubble, but they're almost in a bubble. They're in like a traveling bubble now.
0: Right? Yeah, Right. And it, and I think, so the answer is that these aren't professionals who can
1: curate their entire life within the limited constraints. They're in the college and environment. And who, and who can be contractually induced to give up their right to, I mean, like students have to go to class. Students have to interact with, like, you know. Although students,
0: in-person classes, you know, you can take all, at least at UT, you can
1: take all online classes if you want yeah, to. They, they could they all take to, all online. They have to live on campus. You know, they have to eat somewhere. Right. I mean, like.
0: But all that's true no matter what, right? I, I, that, I, that risk is there no matter what.
1: I don't know. I mean, would we be, I mean, would we be necessarily so sort of gung ho about having as much on campus as we're having, if we didn't have a big time college football program, it's not clear to me the answer to that is yes. I
0: think, I, I think it is. I, so I think that a lot of the risk factors they face are that's comes, uh, factored in the stock price because they're in college, they're, they're in this environment. So to me, the issue is what's the added risk either to them or to others. If we, if we actually have them playing sports, um, I think the crowd issue at stadiums was a, is, and was a real big issue. That's exactly why first it was 50%. Now it's 25%. And, and I can easily imagine ends up being, you know, nobody in the stands or, or, you know, some extremely modest, you know, 50 feet apart. It is outdoors. This isn't an indoor arena. Um, And so I'm not, I'm no longer as concerned about that. And then I think the players themselves, yes, definitely increased risk from practicing games But I think that risk may actually be pretty pale compared to what most of the college kids are doing day in and day out. So I can imagine the off-ramp ends up being spring college football season if the TV contracts will be there so as to provide at least that quarter or a third of the revenue that otherwise would have been there. And, And it may be tempting. I think a lot of people look at this and say, like, this is like the cult of football. Why are we trying to do this? That money is so many jobs to so many people and it's the support for all the non-revenue sports, and it's it matters. It's way beyond just football fans want to see football. I, I plead guilty. I want to see football, but I'm not a lunatic. If it's not safe, and if and if it
1: can't be done safely, then it shouldn't be done. But I think it maybe it could be. I mean, I'm not sure about the could be. I mean, I the a question I don't know the answer to. I mean, what's your guess for how many staff if you had zero people at a Texas home football game, zero fans? What's your guess for the number of people you'd still need to work to, to staff the stadium for the game. I, my, my, I, if you told me if you gave me an over under of 500, I would take the over. I'd go under on that. If, if no, no fans. Yeah. So
0: there's a lot of details we'd have to know about like, wait, okay, no fans, but what about is the band there? Is the, are the journalists there? So these are all variables that can be. crew,
1: Athletic support staff, trainers, Security personnel. Yeah, I,
0: I think, I think probably under five hundred. If it's true that like no one other than the the teams themselves are
1: present. Yeah, that side. So I, there's a larger conversation that I am certainly not expert enough to have. You are, but I don't want to put you on the spot. Which is, you know, I'm not. I wouldn't deny for a second just how critical it is for universities to not lose this massive revenue stream. It does make me wonder, though, about a model where major research universities are dependent upon football, right? To fund um, large swaths of their activities that are not necessarily football. And indeed that to some degree aren't even necessarily athletic, right?
0: So I don't, I don't know. I I certainly agree that the football and basketball, at least for some schools, the revenue sports clearly are the financial foundation of the athletic departments as a whole. They are the foundations of having tennis, swimming, you know, field hockey, all the non-revenue sports, um, some universities, other programs get a cut of the action, but most universities I don't think are profitable in that sense. UT, I think very much is, but we're very unusual. We're at the very high end of it. So anyways, um, I, I as a predictive matter, I think what we'll see is, and, and also as a holding matter, right. Cause you could also waive it later on. They'll say like, all right, fall, we're out. I don't think probably the sec and the big 12 will carry on if everyone else bails out. Um, then again, you don't know, right? The SEC, I think, in particular, I can, I could imagine them being like, "Well, the SEC's plan. Um, we'll see."
1: I mean, they're yeah.
0: they're not going to get pushback, I think, from most of their governors. Some of them, but most of them not. But that, I mean, but what, I mean, well. All right. On a happier note. On a happier note, we said that we were going to put something out there for future frivolity, but we need listener engagement on this. Movie soundtracks, so this was on Twitter a little bit spurred by someone asking, what were the greatest of the 1980s movies soundtracks, and you know we haven't we haven't done forvaldi this way in a while, but we I, have, get back
1: to it. I have a category defined in question yes, yes so i I, I, th- I can think of three classes of movie soundtracks, right um, purely score, right where the soundtrack is just instrumental, okay so um, like a, like a John Williams kind of category right. Um, so Return of the Jedi, right, is a 1980s movie with a soundtrack, right? Right. Um, um purely covers of other songs, right? So so a soundtrack that where pre-existing songs are the soundtrack. So like the big chill. Okay.
0: Okay, right? so not necessarily even covers, but just just taking an existing. Oh, covered. I'm sorry, not covers. Um borrow like pr- songs that exist elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like kind of a like curated Curated library of known songs. Yeah, I,
1: mean, I, I didn't mean cover. I meant curated. Okay. Cool. Um,
0: so the best mixtape, right? Right.
1: Best mixtape soundtrack, which I think is obviously Big Chill. Um, and mm. then the third category is uh, best original songs. Okay. Yeah. And now
0: should we distinguish? I, th- I want to draw a subcategory distinction for the originals. I want to have um, movies where the movie's about the music. It's so like Purple Rain. And so the soundtrack is all original stuff from Prince and the Revolution. Yeah. But it's like that. the movie is literally about these songs and this band, even though it's fictionalized. But um, so that – What's that? Well, so fame would be in this category? Well, so f- fame – so you get some edge cases. That's what I'm saying. It, which, is, which is the whole fun. This is where it's a good teaching vehicle for any uh, first-year students who may be listening to this. Um, all of laws – much of law is about – defining a rule that sounds like it's making a pretty clear distinction, but then you find your edge cases. Uh, But you can imagine uh, movies that got original songs, but that the movie itself is about something else. It's just, those are the original songs they commissioned. Um, Now you have the whole subcategory of Disney films, you know, so like. Were there there enough from the eighties? It just, what. Oh, I, I was going beyond the 80s at this point.
1: Oh, well, I thought
0: right. it was in the 80s. I was like, this is why.
1: I don't, I, I was like, Disney songs from the 80s, huh? <laughs> you know, all those you know, great Disney uh, you know movies from the 80s. Well, I'm sure they were great. I was going to die in the hill that The Big Chill won the second category going away. But So we'll, we'll have to have the this, the horizontal
0: slices of the decades, perhaps. But we need to get clear on our categories. Um, and should there be a distinction between a movie that's entirely about... Um, mm-hmm you know the idea that there is there are these songs this is the band and and other movies that just
1: happened to have songs that were original commissioned for this movie that were great songs all right listeners that's your homework right help us through what the category should be and and nominate what we're we're we we uh we're 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 indulging nominations for the category such as and they and are
0: and let's have next week be limited to the 1980s the movie drops in the 80s all right so next week is
1: 1989 1989 and then maybe the week after we'll do 90 to 99 there you go um, and, and if we're only limiting it to 80 to 89 next week, I'm just saying big chill, second category done. I can't wait to hear what people think and to figure oh, out what I think. If anyone actually made it this far, he is at Bobby Chesney. I am at Steve underscore Vladek. The underscore matters. Uh, we are at NSL podcast. Um, it is August 10th. It is really hot here in Austin. I hope it is cooler and safe wherever you are. Stay safe out there.
0: Adios.